Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. America! As you were. Now, Willis, you feel better? Okay, bad mouth for me in the chat. See, we told y'all that we in the chat. We hear what you say. I heard what you say, Willis. He told us to come to attention, and he went to parade rest. Hey, man, I'm the thrill sergeant. I do what the hell I damn well feel, okay? I'm the HNIC. I'm going to tell you like your mama used to tell you. You know what the hell I meant. The time is now 1,800 hours. Roll call has begun. So I need each and every one of you to hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. I need you to get into that Blaze store and I need you to buy some of that Fearless Army swag. You need to get some shirts. You need to get some hats. We got Fearless draws coming. We're coming out with Fearless condoms. They ain't gonna be able to see us coming. Listen here, man. You need to right now go phone a friend because this fearless rant is about to begin. All right, man, let me tell y'all something, man. When I was at boot camp in San Diego, California, I read a phrase on the wall that said, when he gets to heaven, to St. Peter, he will tell. He will say that there's another Marine reporting, sir, and I've served my time in hell. I want to say happy birthday to the United States Marine Corps. It was established on November 10th, 1775. President John F. Kennedy once said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Marines say, I have but one regret, and that regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. See, people don't understand. When I hear the Marine Corps song, it sends chills through me. It's kind of like how some of y'all, when you hear your college fight song, or even some of you out there, it's the same feeling you get when you hear Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg perform Gin and Juice. Bottom line, I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old. And when I came out, I was a certified full-grown man. And unlike a lot of black leaders who like to go around and tell black kids what they can't be or what they can't accomplish, the Marine Corps showed me what I could accomplish. And I personally don't think that you actually feed a man by building his weaknesses. You gotta make him dig down deep. You gotta make him find his strengths. You gotta take him to a point in life that he never dreamed he can go. While in Marines, I learned to do things that a lot of black men can't do. I learned how to swim. And every black man you see that's been in the Marine Corps has learned how to swim. We've had to all march up mountains. 20 miles to be exact, exact. I fired an M16 accurately at 500 yards. I didn't do it because it was easy. I did it because it was hard. And it was the duty of the challenge that was set before me. See, man, I love this country. I love this country just like I love my family. Some of y'all ask me, Uncle Jimmy, why are you up here supporting this country as bad as this done treated us? 
You know how bad our country's treated some of us? Or how bad our families have treated some of us? Hey man, let me tell you something. We've been mistreated by our families just like we've been treated by this country. This country's raped us. That's what y'all say. We gonna act like we ain't got no molesters in our family? Hey man, I'm here to tell y'all, this country is all we have. And this flag is all I have. And I'm not giving up on this country just like I'm not giving up on my family. Because they're all I have, and that's all I got. And it's right here in my soul. And I'm a United States Marine Corps through and through. Ooh, rah! Let me tell y'all something. Y'all ready? We got a loaded show prepared for me. <laughs> y'all didn't think I was gonna do it like that, did you? Hey, man, let me give y'all a rundown of this show, man. All right, man, we got some intel coming to us from Dave Shannon. He's gonna be coming to us from Idaho. I, I'm not gonna crack the joke that said, is it Idaho or Utaho? Cause I'm gonna grow up a little bit. Also, let me, let, let, let me tell y'all something. I got a phone call yesterday from one of my partners in the NBA, Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler called me and told me that I must be out of my damn mind for coming at Rashad McCann. He told me that Rashad McCann is about that life. And he said that Rashad McCann makes him look like a pussy cat. Well, anyway, Rashad McCann is back with us today. He's gonna talk some more NBA and we're gonna get his opinion on what Jimmy Butler had to say. But I also wanna tell Rashad, Jason, you can tell him too. Hey man, I just got out the hospital. I'm on medication. They might even gave me, they might even gave me that shot, man. So I didn't mean nothing I said yesterday, man. So I don't want no smoke, man, for real, man. All right, anyway, as I was saying, affiliate Steve Kim, our overseas affiliate, he's gonna be back to talk some more NFL. And he's gonna talk about the Cleveland steamer himself, Odell Beckham Jr. G. Craig Lewis, he's gonna be in the house. He's gonna be joining us via Skype to talk about the craziness from this Travis Scott Astro World Festival. And y'all know what today is. It's Wednesday, and we have our weekly Tennessee Harmony section with the pastors, Bobby and Anthony. Now, having said all of that, I need to ask the question. Fearless Posse, are you ready? Huh? Then if you're ready, let's mount up. Because the man that's in charge, he's in charge just because his ass is so large. Some of y'all call him Big Sexy. I just call him Biggie Draws. Hey man, somebody hit the theme music. Release the doves and please put some respect on Jason's name. Let's go, baby. Uncle Jimmy has me fired up, ready to start this fire. Let's get to it. NFL quarterback Aaron Rodgers' Tuesday interview with podcaster Pat McAfee calls me to reflect on the value of freedom. Rodgers, of course, has been embroiled in a controversy the last week. He tested positive for COVID and it became clear he was unvaccinated. Previously, he'd concealed his unvaxxed status by telling the media he had been immunized against the virus that poses virtually no threat to a 37-year-old healthy professional athlete. Uh, last Friday, Rogers appeared on McAfee's show and explained why he didn't take the vaccine. He criticized cancel culture, the woke mob popular on Twitter, and the NFL's illogical COVID protocols. 
He voiced the concerns of many professional athletes and ordinary American citizens. Yesterday, Rodgers returned to the McAfee show and attempted to put the entire controversy to bed. Take a listen. And in one of your quotes, you said on Friday, the right's going to champion me, the left's going to cancel me, but I don't give a shit about either of them. Politics is a sham. In a roundabout, I don't know if that was your exact quote, but it was a roundabout. That has happened, by the way, and I don't have the ability to read or meditate, so I have been in the streets of the Twitter mentions of you for a while because obviously I'm getting tagged in a lot of them. That has happened, and it sounds like you have zero desire to continue to be a poster boy for anything like this. Is, is that an accurate assessment on the entire situation? That is, Pat. I'm a... I'm an athlete, I'm not an activist. So I'm gonna get back to doing what I do best. And that's and that's playing ball. Like I shared my opinion. It wasn't one that was that that was come to uh, frivolously. It involved a lot of study and what I felt like was in my best interest for my body. But um, you know, further comments, you know, I'm gonna keep between myself and my doctors and um, you know, I don't have any further comments about uh, about any of those things after this interview. Did, did y'all see, did y'all just pick up on what just happened there? Aaron Rodgers just exercised his American freedom. He's free to embrace being an athlete. There's no pressure on Aaron Rodgers to be more than an athlete. No one expects him to be the next Muhammad Ali. That burden is only placed on the shoulders of black athletes. White athletes are free to be whatever and whoever they want to be. White liberals strip black athletes of that freedom. White liberals force black professional athletes to be more than what their life experience has prepared them to be. Great athletes spend their teenage years totally coddled. From age 12 to around 25, their primary focus is on maximizing their physical gifts, not their intellectual ones. Given the financial rewards of professional sports, it would be foolish for someone as big and physically gifted as LeBron James or J.J. Watt to spend an equal amount of energy on intellectual development as physical development. There's a short window to take advantage of your body. You have an entire lifetime to develop your mind. Aaron Rodgers, like Michael Jordan, wants to be the best athlete he can be while his body cooperates. Rodgers will worry about being more than an athlete when he's done earning $30 million a year playing football. Rodgers, he's free to do that. Black athletes, well, <laughs> they're the pawns of the liberal media. If black athletes don't pretend to deeply care about the welfare of a career criminal loaded on fentanyl and arguing with the police, black athletes are labeled as bad people, sellouts. A black college student with no criminal record must see himself when looking at George Floyd. <laughs> we must say to ourselves, that could be me. Really? George Floyd? could be you. See, white people are free to think whatever they want. They walk by homeless drug addicts on the street and feel no burden to deeply empathize with them. They're free to pursue happiness, success, and fulfillment. 
We, on the other hand, black people, must publicly pretend that we have all had a near-death experience with police. We're forced to live a lie. Living a lie compromises and inhibits freedom. It clouds the mind and provokes irrational thought and behavior. It's a lack of freedom that separates white men from black men. The left's focus on white privilege is a brilliant tactic to distract from and diminish the importance of freedom. According to progressives, privilege is the exclusive domain of American white men. In order to be truly equal, racial minorities, women, and the LGBTQ must have unfettered access to privilege. If there is ever a reiteration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic march on Washington, Al Sharpton will shout, privileged at last, privileged at last. Thank God Almighty, we're privileged at last. Truth is, that what separates white men from black men in 2021 is not privilege. It's an appreciation for freedom and an understanding of how best to utilize it. America's most valuable commodity is freedom. Black Americans spent more than 300 years fighting for it. We won it in full in the 1960s when Dr. King's civil rights movement forced the erasure of state and federal laws that limited our God-given, constitutionally guaranteed inalienable rights. God-fearing men of integrity won the long war. The left immediately pivoted to denigrating the victory and redefining America's greatest resource as privilege. Freedom, according to them, <laughs> that's fool's gold. Who needs that? Real equality, fulfillment, and happiness can only be attained by those born into or granted privilege. The seeds for the privilege rights movement were planted 60 years ago. The movement fully blossomed in the last decade. Privilege rights activists popped up all across social media. Sean King, DeRay McKesson, and the LGBTQ founders of Black Lives Matter, all these guys rose to power. The left champion author Ta-Nehisi Coates as the Martin Luther King Jr. of the Privileged Rights Movement. After wealth, fame, and Disney deals assassinated Coates' work ethic, Ibram X. Kendi bathed himself in the blood of Coates and assumed the role of Jesse Jackson for the Privileged Rights Movement. Colin Kaepernick, he grew an afro, cast himself as Huey Newton, leader of the Black Panther Party. LeBron James, he read the first paragraph of Malcolm X's book, learned to pronounce the word systemic, and styled himself as Muhammad Ali. Seems like I'm mocking Kaepernick and James. I actually feel sorry for them. They've been lied to by corporate media. Many of the black sports journalists they befriend want black athletes to pretend to be more than athletes so that sports journalists can pretend to be more than they are. Aaron Rodgers has the freedom to demonstrate self-awareness and be exactly what life has prepared him to be at age 37. He's a great quarterback.
He's no one's dumb jock. I wish that the rest of the athletes could learn a lesson from Aaron Rodgers and try to tap in to that freedom. Be who you are. Quit trying to be something you're not even capable of being. And I don't say that to denigrate you. But my God, athletes, dude, I was a great high school athlete, all state, captain of our football team, nationally ranked football team. Other than Jeff George, I was the best player on my high school football team. I was really good and I was really coddled, really coddled. Not coddled like Jeff George, but really coddled. Last semester of high school, I walked the halls of the high school every day. That's all I did. Hung out during lunch period, entertained myself. I was coddled because I was a great athlete and everybody liked me. I was not on track to be some kind of intellectual thought leader. I hustled my way through high school, hustled my way through college. I was coddled and I wasn't even that good in college, but I was still coddled because I was a scholarship athlete at Ball State University. You imagine what LeBron James, the kind of coddling that he's been through. And I know people, oh my God, he grew up poor until about age 10. And then the whole world in Akron, Ohio, bent over backwards trying to get him to the NBA finish line. LeBron, <laughs> LeBron James never finished the Malcolm X book or never even started to read it because I don't think he's that strong of a reader. And, and, and trust me, if I had the same physical gifts as LeBron James, the same would be true of me. I'm not trying to denigrate these guys, but we got to understand who they are so they and help them understand who they are. Aaron Rodgers and again, the white athletes don't have to deal with any of this. Just just go be an athlete. No one expects you uh, to be some activist leader and Aaron Rodgers. Hats off to him for completely rejecting that. His comment on the Pat McAfee show in this era is damn near just as powerful as when Charles Barkley said, I'm not a role model. This whole, you know, we've gone crazy electing athletes and entertainers, role models and activists. We're, we're giving them jobs they're not qualified for. All right. I want to roll out, we're going to engage on this mono uh, and fire starter with Dave Shannon uh, and with Rashad McCants. I, I want to talk with Dave Shannon about freedom and privilege, and I want to talk with Rashad McCants, former NBA player, former North Carolina Tar Heel, about the pressure on black athletes to be more than what they're qualified to be. We'll start with Dave Shannon out in Idaho. Dave, of course, the uh, father of seven, great friend of the show, uh, one of the newest members of the Fearless Army. Uh, Dave, I, 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 we'll start with your take on my belief that freedom, far more valuable than privilege, and that we as black people have surrendered our freedom in pursuit of privilege. We, we, we've 
granted or see the white man as so privileged and we can't be equal until we're as privileged as them rather than leaning into freedom, which is actually America's greatest resource. Your reaction? Well, first, my goodness, we're going to need the rest of the day to go through this. And if your name is Aaron Rodgers, you need to get up right now and go give Jason Whitlock an offering. You owe him a tenth of what you have. Because I don't know a lot of people out there right now, Jason, who are defending Aaron in this way, and they need to. This is a very, very important moment inside of sports and inside of America, and everybody needs to be defending him right now. But as far as it relates to privilege and freedom, what you said in your monologue is foundational. Covenant over time breeds success, right? That's what freedom is, the freedom to be able to operate with God in a particular type of way. But God's world is only designed to work under two uh, ways. One is uh, covenant. The other one is witchcraft. And what I want to define witchcraft is, Jason, is witchcraft is the option of, of trying to accomplish God's means, God's blessings outside of God's means. So freedom under covenant, and we talked about this last time, covenant is an agreement with God to operate as his people, as he is your God. And witchcraft is trying to get those blessings from God outside of the means that God has given to get those blessings. And what we see with people who are peddling this kind of privilege are operating in witchcraft. They're grasping at something that is not theirs. It belongs to someone else. And it's kind of the best way I can give this example. People always talk about David and Goliath. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, but everybody doesn't know kind of what happened before the story with King Saul. King Saul was in his tent. He should have been the giant that went out and fought for Israel to go kill the other giant. The Bible said beforehand that he was head and shoulders above everybody else in the nation, but he was afraid. And so David comes along. And I'm going somewhere with this. David comes along and Saul wants to put the the armory of himself, the privileges that he has, his armor on David. And David had been in the wilderness tending to the sheep of God, practicing with a slingshot, with rocks. It's not sophisticated, but it's freedom. And he's been working with his weapon, tooling his weapon so that when he goes before Saul, He could take Saul's privileges. He could take all the things. I mean, it's fine tuned. It's great privileges. But it wasn't the freedom that David had worked in. And if David went and went out and fought the battle with Saul's armor, where does the glory go? The glory goes to Saul. The glory goes to them. Listen, Jason, we don't need white liberal armor. We don't need white liberal privilege. What we need is the freedom so that we can give the glory to God when we say, man, we were faithful to God. We took care of our kids. We took care of our wives. We took care of our families. We loved our neighbor. And because of that, look how God has blessed us. And that kind of victory goes to God. And it doesn't go to white liberals who want to put their armor on you. Dave, you made a heck of a point. Uh... That was fantastic. I'm going to be marinating on that uh, later uh, this evening. I want to hone in a little bit, though. I think when a lot of white guys take even an Aaron Rodgers, who has a journey and a story from childhood to 37 years old, Aaron Rodgers, I would bet, rejects the notion that he has experienced any privilege that has made him super successful. He, he's, he's sitting there going, no, 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 I put the work in. 
He, he's like, no, 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 no. I, I've had personal conflict and struggle with my family and my parents, and I, I've made all the sacrifices to be one of the most talented and most successful quarterbacks in NFL history. And so what, what Aaron Rodgers, I think, would argue, and a lot of white guys, I think, would argue is like, I've taken advantage of my freedom that America grants me, and I understand that for black people, in the past, you weren't granted these freedoms. But Aaron Rodgers sister, in my 37 years, you've, you've had the same freedoms as me. And how have you used that freedom? And are you now, instead of, because we went, uh, Dave, from a 300 plus year struggle with freedom being the goal to now privilege is the goal. We want to be treated in a privileged fashion rather than just like, give me my freedom and watch what I do with this freedom. Watch the happiness and the success that I create with this freedom. A am I right for thinking that like they moved the goalpost on us and instead of this 300 plus year hunt for freedom and let me show you what I'm gonna do with this freedom, we're now on a hunt for privilege. And, and that's because you, it's, you could just go over there and grab it. They, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, here's the thing. There's a couple things here, Jason, and it's really important. The way that the word privilege is being used, it's being kidnapped. Um, your freedom, your hard work, your effort produces privilege ultimately at the end of the day. So while, yeah, I, I think that um, Rogers would absolutely say, no, I worked hard for this. I, I put in the effort to get here and to do this, and that's why I'm where I'm at. And the way that privilege is being used right now is actually the whole reason we get the word privilege is actually because of covenant. It's committing to a particular effort and work in agreement, and then you get the privileges that go along with it. That isn't alienated just to white people, but what's happening is because of the way that we're deciding to use, um, to, to grasp, like I was talking about earlier, this witchcraft, this grasping, we're reaching for something that is not ours yet. We are um, corrupting the very thing. We're going after this thing that isn't ours. We're trying to take it. We're trying to steal it. We can get there. Um, freedom, every, you know, you talked about this with the, um, with Martin Luther King and you said, we worked for this freedom. We, we, we went after this freedom. It was accomplished. It was a reality. What's happened though, is because we haven't continued to cultivate that freedom, Jason, we have produced a setback in our, in our people, in our nation, because we started reaching for somebody else's stuff. If you didn't work for it, you can't maintain it. You can't get it. And so the people who have worked for it, here's a good example. Winsome Sears' father worked hard with that dollar and 75 cents. And over time, his daughter is now have a privilege of being a lieutenant governor. So that's it's not only just Aaron Rodgers who be able who gets to have this sort of privilege of working with their freedom. You know, the way that we set back a nation is by not believing the the faithful promises of God, when the children of Israel were going to take the land in Canaan, and this is very important, this opportunity for them to take the land, they sent off 12 spies, Jason. Those 12 spies were supposed to go and tell how we were going to take the land. But the people came back and said, oh, my goodness, there's giants in the land. We, we can't take the land. They're, they're privileged with height. Well, two spies said, forget that. 
the promises of God of our freedom from, from Egypt is true that we can have the land. We're going to take it. But because people believe the lies of those 10 spies, those 10 spies kept the people in the wilderness for 40 years. So you're right. Absolutely. If we actually believe that through our hard work, through our freedom, our ability to be able to go out and put our hands in the dirt and make something of ourselves, that God will bless that, we will we'll have all the other things that come with this so-called privilege that's being misused. But if we don't, if we grasp for it, it's going to set us back 40 years. And that's what we're seeing right now with our community. Dave, I, I love what you've added. You've broadened my perspective and, and, and helped me come to some realizations in this conversation because I, I'm sitting there myself in terms of my own journey from poverty yeah. to a place of wealth and how I've used that wealth that I earn to grant myself, members of my family, some privileges. And, yeah. and so it's like, I, I sit here and think about it, and I'm not gonna call anybody out by name, but it's like people that I love that have, and even my, that myself, have made mistakes. I've been able to, come, be through my hard work, and but I've been able to come in and correct their mistakes, my own mistakes, and, and, and fix those things in an instant. And, and if, if a white person did, oh my God, well, you know, they earned that wealth and they use that wealth to help their kids or to help uh, someone in their family and that person's privilege. Well, again, you've earned that privilege and everyone has a right to use it however they see fit. Put the work in. Uh, Dave, thank you so much. Uh, great job. Uh, we're going to move on to Rashad McCants, but before I get to Rashad McCants, uh, I want to tell you about my good friends at Good Ranches. If you're looking for the best food for you and your family, and you need to see our good friends over at Good Ranchers, you'll get better than organic chicken, and their meat comes from cattle that has been grass-fed and grain-finished. They offer a wide selection that includes T-bones, fillets, strips, gourmet burgers, and more. Get their Family Feast Bundle, the Ranchers Classic, or their Cowboy Food Package, and you are guaranteed to get 100% American meat 100% of the time, and at half the price of online competitors, you'll get steakhouse quality at a price every family can afford this is the perfect time we're at the holiday time you gotta eat why not do it with goodranches.com meat they support american farmers they support the fearless army they support this show they support you it is your duty to support Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash fearless. Use the promo code fearless. You can get 20% off each box of mouthwatering meats uh, by subscribing. Subscribing brings the cost down to less than $5 per meal. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash fearless use, or use the promo code fearless. That gets $20 off and free express shipping. GoodRanchers.com slash fearless, promo code fearless. Be a good soldier. Support the sponsors who are supporting us. Uh, Rashad McCants. Hurts. All right, welcome back. Uh, time to roll out to uh, Las Vegas and uh, bring in uh, fearless soldier uh, Rashad McCants. Rashad, we kind of touched on this uh, yesterday. Or, or 
maybe it was Monday, I can't remember, but I, I, I wanted to circle back on the freedom that white athletes have to just be themselves and to be who life has prepared them to be, whereas black athletes have this expectation placed on them by the media, by social media, by sports writers, and, and, and perhaps even to some themselves, that everybody wants to be Muhammad Ali, and, and I found it refreshing, or and really not even all that surprising, that Aaron Rodgers says, you know what, I'm an athlete, I'm not an activist. Shouldn't black athletes have that same freedom? I think that at this point in time, we have to look at traditional versus modern and the evolution of the athlete and us old old heads letting go of the old times and letting the new the new times shine. Like we really got to come to the reality and understand that these athletes do want to be more than the in the box regular cookie cutter athlete that used to be for the last 50 years. And we've all displayed, you know, our you know, opinions about how the old school way was the way it's supposed to be for the next million years. But the reality is everything is evolving. The athletes feel now that they can be Muhammad Ali, that they can go out here and have interest in helping other people do other things and bring light and, and, and be a big voice and use their platform for more of, you know, the, the activism that you say. But let's clean up the word and let's go to solutions. The activism doesn't count if you don't have actionable items. And the athletes aren't prepared to create actionable items, so they just look like they're talking all the time, which is very frustrating to the people like us, where it's just like, you wanna be Muhammad Ali because that's all he was doing was talking. There was no actionable items. So for the athlete, we as the old school must help them create these actionable items so that they can integrate the two, athlete and activism. If you don't have action, you don't have any activism. So you as an athlete has to find a way to create a 501c3, create a private family trust and a private family foundation and then go out and use your mission statement for the things you really care about making change for and doing it the right way. Protesting only gets you so far. And athletes with the platforms that they have with the fan bases they have can really create change and be more than an athlete, but you gotta do more than just say, this is what you wanna be, this is what you wanna see. You gotta go out, like Jay-Z said, actionable items. If you don't have any, we're doing nothing but talking. And I think we can create the solutions where the athlete can become more than an athlete and still perform at a high level. It's just about balancing and leveraging these resources and not having to do it all on your own, using all your energy to take away from your craft and do it in, in a way where you can kind of monetize and leverage, put people in position to take care of the things that need to be taken care of for the mission. Mm completely disagree with you. I'm glad you're making this argument, so don't run away from it. Uh, this is good. I, but I, I completely disagree with you in the sense of starting a 501c3, doing this charity event here, doing, put, put, 
you have athletes are such, and particularly these top elite athletes, such a rare, rare breed and have such a limited time to maximize the money that they can make. And so what, what I think that athletes need to understand is their role isn't to be leaders, it's to be financers. Mm -hmm. And so they need to finance things that they believe in. That they have an opportunity to acquire millions of, you know, LeBron James, they say he's worth a half billion dollars. LeBron James, I'm just sorry, he's not well-versed on global geopolitical issues and, and local issues, any of that. And, and I, it sounds like I'm denigrating him, but I'm really not. If I were as talented as LeBron James, for as long as he's been talented, I would have been all into being an athlete. I would have been in the gym 24-7 trying to be the best athlete I can be and make as much money as I can. And, and again, this is where I think Michael Jordan had it a thousand percent right. While he was an athlete, that's all he really cared about. And once he transitioned out of athletic, athletics, then he started getting involved with other things. And, and so I think we've misinterpreted, we've uh, misrepresented Muhammad Ali's life and legacy. Muhammad Ali, I don't think, was an activist at all. I think he was an individual who was drafted into the military, and because of the religion he was in, and because of his belief, I don't want to do that. And so he stood up for himself. Right. And no different than Aaron Rodgers and Kyrie Irving. Like, oh, y'all drafted me into this vaccine thing. I'm standing up for myself. I think that's appropriate. I don't think Muhammad Ali, and I certainly know the Nation of Islam, did not believe in the civil rights movement, did not believe in integration and all this stuff as the solution. So we love to call Muhammad Ali an activist. And I'm talking about particularly during his boxing career. He was not. He was just like Kyrie Irving and Aaron Rodgers. Y'all trying to do something to me that I don't want to do. As far as Muhammad Ali out, uh, would he be at Black Lives Matter rallies? I don't believe he would be. Or if he was, he would be, it would be one in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago, where they dropping bodies every day. He, he wouldn't be sitting around a police scanner and f jetting around the country once every other month to where there's some police shooting involving a, a, a white cop. He wouldn't focus on the lightning strikes. He would focus on the day-to-day, -day. if he were involved in that. I, I just don't, so I just think we've misrepresented Ali's legacy. The media sends out all this bait and pushes athletes. Oh, you gotta be more than an athlete. And, and, and I get that there is a new model and everybody wants to be more than an athlete, but I don't think the white athletes suffer that same delusion that uh, you know, I have to be an activist in order for the world. I'm there's such an arrogance to that, like that I'm smart enough uh, to be some sort of activist while I play football and basketball. 
That's a joke to me, Rashad. So let's look at why Michael Jordan decided to play ball. He was influenced, right? We were all influenced first to play sports. We got those influences from television from watching people before us, our learned behavior. The same thing is happening now where we're being influenced after the influence. So now everyone who's playing sports that are our pro sports athletes now have a new influence while they're being athletes. That's being activists. Now you see the influence happening at a more rapid pace because back then Michael Jordan didn't have that same activism type promotion that he had to make a decision by. It was just play ball because that was the influence. Now is a there's there's triple influence. Now the athlete has music, he has film, he has activism, he has a a, a, a a plethora of different things that he can do now, and it makes him now weigh his options. And that's the thing that the athlete sees that's important now is not so much how much money I'm making on the court and all this stuff. They looking past that now and they're saying, well, if I can help with my platform and my voice. How can I leverage that? And so we have to see that that's just something that they're interested in through influence. And that's what's being pushed. Like you said, this might be something that you don't like that's being pushed on these athletes, but they're adopting it, they're accepting it, and they're looking for ways to do more than just play ball. Okay, have they considered the possibility that they're hurting more than helping? And it would be like, hey, Whitlock, you've got a platform. You know, why don't you use it to talk about diet and exercise? Why don't, why don't you share your expertise on diet? And I, and I would start with, well, let's start with a dissertation on McDonald's and the filet of fish sandwich <laughs> and how much better it is when it's a double filet of fish sandwich uh, with extra cheese. I could, you know, I'm passionate about the double filet of fish sandwich. I could use my platform to tell everybody, <laughs> boy, here's what you do when you hit a McDonald's drive-through. Here's the speed you should be driving. Here's how close you can get to one. I'm an expert on all this stuff, Rashad. Right. I don't think it's a, a good use. I don't know what I'm t talking about when it comes to, I mean, I know a little bit, but not really a much. I'm not an expert. I, sh I would be better off taking the money that I've made and saying, you know what, I'm gonna hire uh, 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 somebody, a dietitian, a yoga instructor. Uh, you know, again, there's a reason why on Wednesdays I bring ministers in here because I like to talk about things from a biblical perspective, but I actually try to put on ministers who are experts in this to either. Uh, set me straight or confirm my worldview or whatever. That's what I just think athletes are out over their skis. And I say that having been a college athlete, not a great one, but a college athlete, I've spent all of my friends are virtually either college or professional athletes. I don't say this to, to, to denigrate it, but very few of them have I met like, whoo, this dude is brilliant. Or, you know, about X, you know, these other topics. What I, what I mostly be like, yeah, that dude knows as much as me. 
uh, you know, he parties like I do, or he he used to chase the same kind of girls as me. Uh, he he knows all the hip hop songs like I do. That that's what I get from most athletes. They're just way out over their skis. We really are geniuses, Jason. If you really look at the craft in which we are are diving into sports, right? We not we need to know the playbooks. We need to know the receiver position. We need to know all the center, the guard, the forward, all these positions, all this lingo. All of this is a process that is ingrained in our head throughout the Pop Warner, AAU, all of these things that prepare us to get to college. When we, once we get to college, it's just like going through K through 12. We're just going through a review of all the things that we've learned. So athletes learned how to become athletes over time. Just like athletes now have processed the, the mindset of understanding what an athlete is, there's no longer has to go through the farm system to know what an athlete is anymore. So for the athlete, they want to process something else just as fast. It's a challenge for us. It's a competition to see if now, if I can adapt this research on the athlete side, of what it is to be an activist, what they're doing over there in Hong Kong, what they're doing over here and want to try to speak on it. It's a challenge for me to try to get this information and be really well-versed on it, articulate on it. It's a challenge. Now, let's not say, Jason, it may not be something that we supposed to be doing or people think we should be doing, but it's a challenge now. So we're gonna take that challenge on because you're saying we can't, we're not good enough. That's, a, that's the athletic, prowess that's what we live for you telling me i can't you telling me no i'm gonna prove you wrong and that's what they feed off of the critics they feed off all the criticism if we continue to criticize the athletes they're gonna continue to keep pushing forward to prove us wrong and that's why we need to work together for some type of solution that they can become what they want to become and not being restricted because maybe we feel like somebody else is more qualified for it all right, and so my whole point about Aaron Rodgers is he has enough self-awareness to be like, nah, I'm not an activist. It ain't me. And so, <laughs> right, it's not, and so why don't the black athletes have the same self-awareness? Because I'm gonna give you an analogy. I'm a competitive person too. And so, but if I showed up on a basketball court and I was like, I got Rashad. I'm checking Rashad. Rashad was like, man, you ain't qualified, bro. You got to drop I'm, 100. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go I'm gonna have to go against you, though. Regardless if you qualify. But, but what, we, you, nah. what you, you would tell me off top, bro, you ain't qualified. Drop 100. Grow four or five inches. Uh, put about 30 inches on your vertical leap. Then, perhaps then, and that maybe at 20 years of training, then you'll be qualified to check me. And literally, that's the same thing. And I get, and this is where the wealth comes in because it feeds an ego that tells you anything I put my mind to, I can accomplish. And, and it's like, there's no recognition among a lot of athletes like, hey, I know you worked hard and I know you made some sacrifices. But you also have to realize the average American man is five foot nine inches tall. Mm -hmm. And Rashad McCants is six foot four, six foot five. Mm -hmm. I believe only 10% of the world population is six foot two or taller. 
the average NBA player is six foot six. That's a rare breed of human beings. And so, like, in the profession I'm in, it doesn't matter how tall you are, how short you are. Bob Costas is like five foot seven, I think. He's at the top of my profession. And, and so even though I'm six foot, I don't have an advantage over him. And so the intellectual Olympics is a much broader competition field than the athletic Olympics. We have placed the athlete on a pedestal. Like, oh man, you climbed the top of the athletic pedestal. And, and, and there's no recognition like, well, you know, I had a leg up because, you know, I hit the genetics lottery. I'm six foot six. Uh, I can, you know, boy, I, I was jumping over tall buildings when I was 12 years old, where, you know, Whitlock struggled to jump over the Sunday paper. And so it, it, it's, there's some, just some things that give you advantages in it. Because again, if it was just about who worked hard, there would be a lot more Muggsy Bogueses in the NBA. But there's a lot of really unathletic seven-footers, six-foot-ten guys that make a lot of money in the NBA, and it's not because they worked harder than Muggsy Bogues or, you know, go look at, you know better than I do, all the six-foot-ten guys that made a ton of money, and there's like six-foot-three guys that could really ball that played in the NBA. They didn't make that kind of money. Uh, you know, <laughs> go, uh, I, I once looked at Jock Vaughn versus Greg Ostertag and how much money they made in the NBA. Neither one was a great NBA player, but Jock Vaughn was better than Greg Ostertag, but Greg Ostertag was seven foot, so he made a lot more money than Jock Vaughn. And <laughs> it, it, it's, it's I, I just, I'm beating up the same point, but I'm, I'm so glad. I'm glad we disagreed today. That, that's good, because uh, <laughs> we need that, and we need that perspective. But, Brashad, I'm just telling you, uh, these guys aren't qualified to be activists, and, and I'm not saying that to denigrate them. I'm saying that if, if I had a chance to make the kind of money that professional athletes did, I wouldn't spend a whole bunch of time worried about how I'm gonna reform the criminal justice system. And we've got all these athletes running around acting like they know exactly what needs to be done in the criminal justice system. They know exactly what the police should be doing. It's a joke. It's, a jo it's embarrassing that, that they're using their voice to denigrate a system that they don't really understand. And look, trust me, I don't have plenty of family members uh, in, the, in the law, in the criminal justice system. And it, it, I, I love all these people that are experts now on police-involved shootings, and I don't know what I'm talking about. I, cousin, I helped raise, tasered and killed by the police in 2012 in Indianapolis. I helped raise him. I look at his picture every day. Uh, th this BS that athletes are saying about police-involved shootings, they don't know what they're talking about. They, they're getting all their information off of Twitter. I'm ranting and raving. Rashad, thank you so much. You did help with this conversation tremendously. This, I, you've had a lot of great appearances. I think this may have been my favorite one. All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Steve Kim, my Korean brother from another mother.
쏟아 빨리 박수쳐 기다리지 말고 서둘러 무슨 나랑 밝혀서 to feed you raps when I see that you up here 불러 Alright, welcome back. Time to roll out to uh, Los Angeles and uh, visit with Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell. Uh, Steve, we may not get any further than the OBJ topic. Uh, I, I went a little long with Dave Shannon and Rashad McCants. I, I got some ministers coming on. But anyway, I, we're not stressed for time but because I do want to talk about Odell Beckham Jr. He's cleared waivers. And uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I guess, have said they're not interested. Uh, the Green Bay Packers have offered him a minimum contract. If, if OBJ struggled in Cleveland in terms of not a lot of nightlife, boy, I'd love to see him in Green Bay. Uh, I guess the Chiefs and the Patriots may be interested. Uh, where do you think Odell Beckham Jr. lands and how much would you spend on him? Well, look, you're halfway through the season, so I'm not so sure how much restructuring of the roster and the salary cap you can really do eight, nine weeks into the season. As it relates to the Chiefs, I don't understand this, Jay. The Chiefs have a lot of problems. I don't know if wide receivers one of them. That's like adding another sprinter to the Jamaican relay squad. I look Kansas City, now there's like a bunch of problems. Run defense, pass defense, overall defense. They don't make a commitment to the run. They asked Patrick Mahomes to do too much. I don't really think they need another wide receiver in my view. As for the Patriots, I just don't think he's a cultural fit. I know there's some stories about there that there are is a mutual respect between Belichick and Odell Beckham. But you know what? You have a very good, solid, young quarterback that gets the ball out quickly. He doesn't necessarily have a favorite receiver. Why even add that to the mix right now? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And my recollection is I remember Tom Brady, a very young Tom Brady, and a Bill Belichick winning Super Bowls with David Givens and guys like Deion Branch. I'm, I'm not so sure that's exactly the right mix. If I had my druthers for Odell Beckham, and this is still a risk, the team that I like, the situation I believe best fits him, if he can accept the number two role, Green Bay Packers. You have an elite quarterback that definitely wants to prove he can be a Super Bowl winner this year based on everything going on outside the game of football. They have a number one receiver in Devontae Adams. And one thing that uh, Aaron Rodgers has not had recently, I believe, is a one-two punch. At his most effective, I remember he had James Jones and your old colleague at FS1, Jennings. Devontae Adams is basically a one-man show outside with a really strong running back in Aaron Jones. I'd like to see how that works. I don't think there's any perfect situation. And now people are saying he might sign with the Saints. Jason, he really wants to believe that Taysom Hill can make him the superstar that he wants to be. I get it. He played at LSU. Geographically, that fits. The Saints are a team that looks like they're going to struggle to go 8-8. Eight and eight. I, I just don't get that destination like some are reporting. I don't know why you would want to move OBJ back home. Uh, to right. New Orleans and and have those type distractions. Look, Steve, there's an obvious landing spot for OBJ. And there's a reason why uh, most people consider me the smartest man talking about sports because I'm the only person who will tell people the obvious location. I don't know if the organization is smart enough to see the opportunity. Uh, it's, a, it's, generally speaking, considered a bad organization. 
But why aren't people talking about the Cincinnati Bengals? Joe Burrow's the quarterback. He's off to a tremendous start. He's an LSU guy. He and OBJ have some sort of a relationship. The Bengals have been uh, a surprisingly decent team. They're in the same division as Cleveland. If you want revenge on someone, stay right there in the state of Ohio. You just sign some one-year deal, try to hook up with Joe Burrow and see if the Bengals can overachieve. If, if, if you go there and have success with Joe Burrow and the Bengals, your value is really high going into next season. Uh, I, I think the Bengals are the most obvious destination. Uh, hmm. They probably pay a little bit more. Uh, than other uh, other teams, uh, but that that's and and I, you know my number two spot would be Mike Tomlin and the Pittsburgh Steelers, and and I know they've probably got you know leftover PTSD from Antonio Brown, but Ben Roethlisberger loves talent and receiver talent. Mike Tomlin doesn't mind dealing with headache players. He should be trying to stay right there hmm. in the AFC North. Bengals or Steelers. That, that's, and this is why I'm a brilliant sports pro, uh, broadcaster, Steve. Go ahead. Jason, I, don't I couldn't me that, disagree but. with you more. You're number two right now on this own panel. Here's the problem with the Bengals. <laughs> they have a guy called Jamar Chase, me. He's already an elite receiver. Him and Burrow, you want that LSU mojo? They got it. And they have a pretty good number two receiver in T. Higgins and a good tight end in Uzuma. And they have a strong running game, the Boomer Sooner backfield, with those two guys from OU, Mixon and Samaje Pirine. They don't lack offensive weapons. The last thing I want is to have a young quarterback have his head muddled by, get that guy the ball. He needs to be fed or he's going to be a problem. Sorry, that I think that's a terrible destination. If I'm Joe Burrow, I'm saying to the Browns, uh, to the Bengals, I'm good here. I'm good. I've got my guy. As it relates to the Steelers, okay. That's a little bit more interesting to me. But keep this in mind. Ben Roethlisberger, at the end of the year, if he's a horse, he's going to the glue factory. He has really declined, and he's no longer that guy that can run around, extend Played good plays. last week. Uh, okay, he played okay. He played okay. I thought in the second half, Justin Fields was the better quarterback on that field. So I don't, again, there's not a perfect situation, but if you're Odell Beckham, I think Green Bay is the place. I get it. There's no there, there in terms of a social nightlife. It's not a lot of fun for a lot of people, but you have a chance to play with Aaron Rodgers, who's still very much at the peak of his power. Devontae Adams will take away some coverage. You're going to get some favorable looks. I like that situation, but going back to Cincinnati, no, Joe Burrow's good. He's got enough pieces as it is. Uh, since you mentioned it, I'm going to ask, uh, did you hear any of my take about Aaron Rodgers and his comments yesterday on Pat McAfee's show? I'm an athlete. I'm not an activist. I love the fact that he's got that yeah. kind of self-awareness and he's exercising that kind of freedom. Why can't black athletes tap into oh. that exact same energy? I did. Excellent monologue. I read it. I heard it. it. But this goes back to something that's very interesting, okay? And it's a dynamic that doesn't exist for white athletes. And I heard an interview uh, a couple of months ago that Kwame Brown did with Tommy Sotomayor when they were still talking to each other. So this is about a year and a half, two years ago. And Kwame Brown mentioned that when he was a rookie, he was talking to another rookie on the Wizards, and they're talking about, hey, what do you do with your money? 
And Kwame Brown said, well, you know, I got to buy this and that for this family member. I got to take care of my mom. I got to take care of my third cousin, Uncle Ray Ray and Pookie. So I got to help them up. And so then Kwame Brown says to this white guy, he goes, hey, what are you doing? No, my dad just told me to make sure I save my money, invest in stocks and bonds. In other words, from a micro level, there's a pressure on black athletes that when they make it, they have to support everybody. For a white athlete, it's basically buy a home, get married, try not to get divorced, and then live your career out as a player. So if you expand that, for white athletes, it's almost like, for the most part, you don't have to do anything but play ball, right? But for black athletes, and I said this a couple weeks ago to you, Jason, there's a survivor's guilt that even though these athletes have a long, hard road and have to show an incredible amount of discipline, along with having the right DNA, to make it through the hurdles, to get to the very top level and become multimillionaires, there's a survivor's guilt that, hey, you're still down with us, right? While even though you live in a gated community, which is 99.9% white, you got to act like you're still very much aggrieved and that you are going through some really tough times in your life when you're like, even in the recesses of their mind, they're thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm the one who put those shots up at midnight. I'm the one who didn't go party. I'm the one who didn't succumb to the street life. There is still that pressure on every level to make sure. Steve froze. We're going to uh, end it there because I, I got to keep it moving. We got these ministers to talk about. We want to talk about Travis Scott and the satanic rituals and hip hop music. We have an expert uh, coming on before we get to Tennessee Harmony. All that and more. Next. All right, welcome back. Uh, this week, we've been talking about uh, the events in Houston, Texas, uh, Travis Scott, the concert, the Astroworld tragedy, as many, eight people, maybe more, died, many others injured. Uh, and we talked about it, because a lot of the people, the concert goers that posted over it, Instagram and on social media said, hey, look, man, this was satanic. There were satanic rituals at play. And someone reached out to me over Instagram and said, Jason, you got to get G. Craig Lewis on of X Ministries. He's from Texas. He's an authority on hip hop music and perhaps some of the uh, satanic messaging in hip hop music. So we reached out to G. Craig Lewis and he's been kind enough to join us. I'm a longtime uh, hip hop music fan. Uh, I am someone that was a hip hop music critic, particularly as it became more and more violent and gangster and just promotion of all, all kinds of values. But I have to admit, I've been a fan of hip hop, uh, but I'm trying to understand that I've really come into an awareness of like, Man, a lot of this stuff in hip hop is pretty satanic. And so wanted to uh, reach out to uh, Pastor Lewis and get an expert opinion. I'm, I'm told this is an area that you have some real expertise and passion on, uh, Pastor Lewis. So what do you think happened? We'll start here. What do you think happened in Houston at this Astro World event? Well, um, first, I want to say hello to you. Um, been watching you down through the years as well. Um, 
But as far as the event, uh, that Travis Scott concert, I believe what happened was just a manifestation of what he's rapped about since he started. Um, all of his music, um, what he does, the images that he portrays, especially his music videos. Uh, they all show portals to hell, going to hell, falling into hell. Uh, so he tried to recreate hell in his concert. Um, I did a video about this maybe two years ago called The Truth Behind Hip Hop, Outer Darkness, where I talked about these guys glorifying hell and making hell look like, a, you know, a beautiful place to be versus the lives or, or the way, you know, you're living now. Um, and then, you know, if you know anything about little Lucy Vert, he even did it in his concert where he basically told him, hey, we're about to go to the other side too late. You already in here. We got your soul, you know. So these guys have been uh, portraying these images of, of hell and uh, the demonic realm and Satanism since the beginning. Many of them, that's why they're famous. And so this concert was just a manifestation of it. It was just what you know what um he's he's been talking about and i'm just surprised that people are surprised especially the ones that went in you walked in through a demonic tunnel portal that said see you on the other side uh you walked into the darkness everything about it was dark and shady and scary so i'm just you know it just it trips me out how people can be so blind on one end and then now they're afraid or they're talking about how satanic the concert was. And I'll, I'll say this and I'll let you talk, but the last part of that is how, how are you so afraid and how are we talking about how satanic it is without the antithesis? the antithesis of Satanism, which is Jesus Christ. I mean, nobody's talking about God. Nobody's talking about the other side of Satanism. There's no in-between. But if this was Satan, then you need God or we need to talk about God and have a conversation about the Lord. I mean, so I don't you don't have the right to call it demonic and satanic if you're not going to escape that side and choose the other side. Pastor Lewis, why aren't we as particularly black people, because hip hop is defined as our culture, an expression of black culture. And, you know, it took me some time and some years to like fully understand, like, this is our culture. I mean, what are we doing to the minds of young people? Why aren't we more in tune and resistant to hip hop and this style of music being defined as our culture? Well, it's because of the way it started. So if you take the founders of it, Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, KRS-One, uh, I left somebody out. Um, uh, um, well, I can't remember it now. I'm getting older, dude. But <laughs> this is <laughs> this is if you look at the start of it, it started as a street culture as a replacement for the things that a father would give you in the home. So basically, you know, it started as a way of validation and being approved of. Uh, it gave, you know, young black men, you know, an, an identity, the way to dress, uh, something to mimic, something to model, something to do. Uh, it gave them a name. Most of them used, you know, changed their names, Cool Hurt, Grandmaster Flash. We don't even know their real names. Uh, oh, Africa Mabata is the one I left out. Oh, Lord. Uh, but 
the um the, the names of these guys, African Bambada and all these different things, they would it gave them their name. It gave them everything that a father would give you. So it became like our cultural expression because it was a replacement for the father. And that's why people are so quick to defend it. And, you know, then if we look at the other side of it, the musical frequency side, you know, if you want to get a message to the masses uh, without them being fully aware of it, you always put it through music. And the Travis Scott incident is proof of it. You can have them listening to satanic songs, watching satanic videos, and they don't realize it's satanic until they're there with Satan. Only music can do that. Only music can go into the mind of a man and disturb his conscience without his consent. It bypasses your frontal lobe. That's why, you know, I used to do this all the time when I traveled and spoke, but I'd always say the best part of waking up, everybody would say, Folgers in your cup. You don't remember that because that's, you know, a cool phrase. You remember it because it was a melody. The best part of waking up, and then everybody says, Folgers in your cup. And it taught you that. It bypassed your frontal lobe. You learned it without even trying to learn it. And so, whenever you want to get a message into people, you use music. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, Isaiah 14 11 tells us that Satan was a musician. He had vials and pipes in his body, the devil. So, the devil's going to always use what he was created to use. Music can hide anything, it can hide any kind of message. And so, that's what has happened down through the years. We adopted it as a culture to replace the father. And now every negative message that the enemy wants in us, he just puts through the music. People will not even pay attention. I mean, Jay-Z and Beyonce in the White House, just like they belong there. But Beyonce is teaching young girls, you know, sexual gestures, how to, you know, promote sexuality. Jay-Z is promoting the street life, the thug life, all these things. We see the positive things they do. But if you listen to their music, it's cussing you out. It's talking about, you know, uh, having sex, using your body, all the things that will destroy a culture most uh, um, uh, morally destroy a culture. All of those things are hidden in the music. We see it in our culture. We just don't know who to blame. And that's the problem. Tell me those scriptures again. Isaiah 14. Is that what Isaiah 14 and 11 tells us the plight of Lucifer in heaven and why he got kicked out. He started talking about he would ascend into the heights of the clouds uh, and uh, he would be like the most high. But in that passage, it also when it talks about what God was going to do to him, he says the, vo- the the noise of your vows will be brought down, meaning the sounds you're making or the pipes. He's the actual worship leader uh, as far as church theologians uh, in heaven. And he was cast down from that, but he's a musical being. And so whenever he wants to hide an agenda, I mean, you know, when Bob Marley wanted the Rastafarian agenda. They, they use music for that. Uh, just any big movement uh, where you want to um, uh, indoctrinate a people, you always want to attach music to it because music can actually push your message without that person's consent. It will go into the bypass their frontal lobe. And so do you think the actual rappers know what they're signing up for? Uh, know what they're doing or is even because I've reached the point where I just feel like the music industry tells these guys up front like this is what you're going to do these are the words you have to use these are the ways we're going to promote you and your music if you're not on board with that 
you're not getting this contract. And they purposely, because I'm old enough to remember when a lot of rappers were college educated, that you know there was actual a rap group called the College Boys. And mm -hmm. then music, rap music pivoted to, well, you had to be on parole or just released from prison in order to even get a rap concert. So they intentionally target the desperate and the people that have no other options to be the front men for this type of music. Well, you know, I don't agree with that totally. Um, yeah, they know exactly what they're signed up for. They're offered it and they'll all tell you they accepted it. Um, I know people that have come out, I've helped people come out of it. I've been doing this for 20 plus years. So I've seen the industry just, you know, all aspects of it, people that work in all aspects of it. So they, they've told me that, yeah, that you're approached and you're told that you are doing a deal with the devil because, you know, your project, your music has got to go into the mastering rooms and they got to put these satanic messages in the music, subliminal messages, all these different things because they want to influence people. Even, you know, Crazy Bone and others have talked about it online where they went to meetings and they were told, you know, that they were building prisons, you know, they were, they wanted to, uh, you know, destroy a demographic of people and bring, bring their level of morality down just so they can build prisons in that area, private prisons. So this is all documented. So it's true. But the part that I don't agree with is, you know, leaders of the new school and, you know, all of these guys back in the eighties, the conscious rappers, they were conscious rappers, but their problem was the fact that they believed they were gods. So they believed in a religion, you know, all of them at the time came together and believed in, you know, the 5% nation of gods and earth where they believed that the black man is God. So they would talk about it in their songs. The consciousness, the wokeness back then was really anti-biblical and anti-Christ. And so that led to the opening up of the whole thing to the satanic worship, because once you, you know, push God aside, you're open for the devil to really take control. And so guys like Jimmy Iovine and others came in and was like, hey, if y'all going to just diss God, you might as well get paid for it. And it's turned into what it is now, where there's really no difference in heavy metal and hip hop. Now they're both the same. I saw this coming 20 years ago, 20 plus. I talked about it in my book, The Truth Behind Hip Hop. But God showed it to me and he showed me that black people would be worshiping worshiping the devil in their music. And that was 30 years ago. And when it was unheard of and people thought I was crazy. And I mean, they would, I'd go speak. We'd have crowds to five to 10,000 people. They would put snipers in the audience. They would threaten my life. They said they were going to take me out. And even now, you know, guys come at me all the time, threats and different things, because they don't want you messing with their father. This is the only father they know. This is the only identity they know. It gave them their name. It gave them their swag. It gave them what people know them as. So they look at it like you messing with my daddy. And so it gets real personal. But my job is to try to bring them out of it to show them, hey, man, you're a person without an ability, without talent. You don't want to be a human doing. You want to be a human being. God made you a human being. So let's find out, you know, where your where your um, deficits are. And let's try to address those and not mask them with the applause of people or the approval of people because you have a talent. How high of a priority, the, the kind of things you're sharing with us today and you've been sharing for 20 years or more, how, how high of a priority should the church make teaching 
the reality of this style of music and where we've gone. I, I think it's paramount and it's of the highest importance because I see it influencing so many young people. But, but either most people in the church don't understand it at the level that you do and maybe they can't teach it or is there a fear that if you, if you because so many people have their feet in both world, is there a fear of running off your congregation if you expose the kind of truths that you're talking about? Man, that's a good question, Jason. That's why you're the man. But uh, <laughs> the, pro the problem is that when you go down this path of correction, there's correction that needs to be done in us. And a lot of people aren't ready to be corrected. So when I was first started, I was just talking about the, the music of the kids, what they were getting into, what was going to happen. And man, I had huge congregations. I traveled the whole world, spoke in every continent except for uh, uh, Antarctica, basically. And um, was just traveling, doing that. People were bringing me. It was just a phenomenon. There was no social media, so I had to do the legwork myself. But man, once I started talking about the earth, wind, and fires and the, you know, Ohio players and the messages, the satanic messages that they had in their music, then the parents were like, now, wait a minute. We just played that song during offering. So you can't come in <laughs> and, and tell that. And so, you know, it's like the truth, you know, people, it's just the love. The devil knows it. The love of what, man, that music takes me to a time. It takes me to a place. I love that beat. I love, you know, Roger and the talk box zap. And I, I'm just not ready to consider something that they were doing wrong because that's my childhood or that's my past or that's what I like to listen to now and so people begin to shun you know or move away like man you know this part okay you can teach this part to the kids but stay out of my record collection and I'm the type man truth is truth nothing is worth you know uh, my relationship with the Lord or, or getting in the way of the God I serve so if I find out that one of these old school and it's not all of them but if I find out one of these old school artists was dabbling in the Satanism and they're putting messages in me while I'm you know with my wife or while I'm uh, sleep, I'm playing this music and it's doing something to me, then I, I don't want to hide that truth from anyone. Uh, so I'm going to ask you uh, this question, but I only want you to give me the positive answer. If there's a negative answer, I don't want to know it. I can listen to the Isley Brothers and feel safe. <laughs> 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 you know, don't uh, take that, the Isley Brothers away from me, man. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, people, you know, sexual music with sexual innuendo in it is so dangerous for trying to live an upright moral life. And that's that's the thing. You know, the Bible teaches against fornication, adultery, those kind of things. But if somebody is singing about it, man, that's more powerful almost than you actually doing it. It will create a desire in you. It'll change your mind. You know, I, I talk about it all the time back in the day. You know, I was listening to R. Kelly and I was a Christian and a preacher and everything. But I thought, 
man, I'm going to listen to him from a musical aspect since I'm a musician because there's some chords he's using that, you know, I, I just admire. So I tried to separate the two, but it just built lust up in me and made me a lustful person. And I went through a period of that and I had to repent for that, repent for my actions. And God showed me, hey, this is that music you're listening to. You're trying to, you know, do something that you can't do because music is too powerful. You can't toy with it. So, you know, certain messages are going to come. They're going to get in you. And when they get in you, they're going to change your behavior. That's the whole point. Uh, you're a thousand percent right. And, and what has helped me over the last two to three years is, I mean, I listen to so much gospel music just on a constant <laughs> and it, it, it changes what's inside of me. It changes mm -hmm. every the, the way I approach the world. And, and, and I, I literally I used to, I just wrote a piece recently about all these different songs that used to be I used to think were the greatest song of all time. Uh, you know, I think Why Have I Lost You? Uh, was the first song I thought was the greatest of all time. And then for a while, Guy had a song, Let's Chill. I thought that was the greatest song. But, and so I finally have reached the point in the last two years where I think the greatest song ever done is Rance Allen and Kirk Franklin, uh, <laughs> uh, Something About the Name of something Jesus. Something About the Name, yeah. And, <laughs> and so I finally have gotten there. Uh, and it's helped me a little bit. Man, if I got to throw away Choosy Lover, uh, <laughs> Woo. I'm but not you even going to ask you about Jodeci. <laughs> oh, don't. I know them personally. But the bottom line here, Jason, is, you know, when you set out on a path, it's like we set out on a path for everything. You set out on a path to make this wonderful show. And, man, this show is phenomenal. You bring on good people, all of that. But you want it to be the best at it. So you spent time with it. When we spend time with God like this, when we get into his word, you know, we can't just do it, talk to him, hear it there. We have to read what he said to know him. But when we do that, he'll start taking things away from us and showing us what's harming us. So it's not me coming and throwing a blanket and saying, get rid of all of this and you'll be fine. It's more so the relationship where as you grow, you know, because like I said, that R. Kelly thing, that happened years after I was preaching and thought I was okay. So, you know, we're always working on it. God is always showing us what we need to correct. That's what his grace and mercy is for. Give us time and give us grace to get it right. So it's best to just allow that relationship and he'll bring you preachers. He'll bring you messages. He'll bring you what you need to get to that place, but allow him to do it versus you trying to go through the collection and pick and choose. I tell people all the time to go on the E-Fast, electronics fast, where you take 30 days uh, or 21 days is what it really takes mentally to, you know, to uh, for your mind to be fully restored. I take 21 days and don't listen to anything. Then after that, then start bringing music back and you'll be more sensitive to what's in the music. It's almost like going on a fast. If you go on a sugar fast for 21 days, then when you try to eat sugar, everything will be hyper sweet. It'll taste a hundred times sweeter because sugar dulls your palate over time. Well, the same with this music. It's going to dull your frontal lobe. It's going to dull your guardian. And you're going to get less and less concerned about what you're bringing in because you've, you know, you've grown used to it. But if you take that time away and then bring it back, you'll be like, oh, I didn't know he said that in that song. Man, I can't listen to that. And that's how, you know, that's the best way to approach it.
Pastor Lewis, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to ask you to come back, but I, I'm going to do it after I hit that offering and make sure that I thank you and, and bless your church and the ministry that you're doing in a real way. Uh, I'm going to take care of that today. I really appreciate you sharing this perspective. Uh, I think your voice is important and it needs to be amplified. Thank you so much. You're welcome, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe, hit that like button. Leave a thoughtful comment about what we just heard from Pastor Lewis. All right, Tennessee Harmony. Nerds. Favorite time of the week, Tennessee Harmony, Pastor Bobby Harrington, Pastor Anthony Walker. Uh, we're a little tighter today. We've had a long show, a lot of different guests. So I'm going to ask you guys to get us rolling here with a quick prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity. Always, Father, we pray that all that we say and do is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, I want to start by piggybacking off of what we just heard from uh, Pastor Lewis from Texas, uh, G. Craig Lewis. I, I thought it was a great interview. He, he made reference uh, to Isaiah, I think, chapter 14, yeah. uh, and said that Lucifer was in the music and uh, that he talked about how music is being used. Uh, to manipulate and seduce people into an immoral behavior. But his scriptural reference, I wanted to know you, you guys' thoughts. What did you think of his interpretation? So, um, first of all, I thought he did a great job with his, uh, what he was saying. I wouldn't use uh, Isaiah 14. If you look at verse 4, the reference is to the king of Babylon. And uh, so he's talking, Isaiah's, it's a prophecy about the king of Babylon. Now, that doesn't mean there's not implications that can be spread broader because they, uh, people often use Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel uh, 36 and 38, and they're talking about kings on earth, but they're supercharged language. So, it, you know, they're attributing it to Satan or the uh, demonic, but the historical context is a king who's prideful. So um, good point. I'm not sure I would use that passage. Mm. Uh, what did you guys think about his suggestion or statement, basically, that music is one of the most powerful tools of corruption and to implant thoughts in people's minds? It's certainly something I believe. Uh, what did you guys think of that? I would simply say, you know, Satan is an opportunist, so he will use whatever opportunity he can to deceive, to distract anything from God. So music is something that God uses, obviously, uh, to extend his praise, his worship. But if Satan can use that avenue, he will. And I believe that he does. I appreciate his points on how music and how uh, society and the industry uses it to push forth a narrative that goes against God. Yeah, I totally agree. 
I, I think, and this is where your expertise will help tremendously because I'm going to push my own thoughts in here. I think for young people, music is a far more powerful tool of communication and manipulation and influence than the spoken word. And so in the church, uh, I, if you're trying to reach young people, music is more effective than what I think what's actually said in the pulpit. What's said in the pulpit is probably more for adults. And so I, I, it, to me, when I'm listening to Pastor Lewis, I, I think I'm seeing a well-executed plan of I'm gonna capture young people through music and then I'm gonna turn them over to Bobby and Anthony when they're adults and see if they can fix what I've put in their foundation. Yeah, I think it's always been that way. You know, there's a really strong doctrine in the Bible uh, that music is the way you communicate God's truth, that you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that you sing songs about Jesus. Whatever you're singing about, uh, as Pastor Lewis pointed out, it goes past the frontal lobe into the subliminal parts of your brain, and it's an automatic default. This morning I was talking to somebody in our church, and they were talking about this song that's out there that his daughter loves. So this is a girl probably 15 years of age, and she loves this song, Sophia. And so she was talking to her dad about it, and they looked at the lyrics, and they start going through the lyrics, and it's basically uh, a young girl uh, singing about another young girl, and it wouldn't be terrible if we had a lesbian relationship, would it? Like other people would think bad things about it. Totally catchy song that all these uh, young teenage girls are singing, and you know that it affects how they think, and it's going to affect what they're doing. So you are exactly right. Music is a supremely important battleground for how people think, believe, and then act. We've used music from children to how to teach them. We took Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star to teach them their ABCs. And so we've often used music as a means of teaching. But again, allowing Satan to be an, opportunity, uh, an opportunist, I will use these great beats. I'll use pop culture. I'll use this to put forth my message. The danger that I see with that is you do have a young generation that is not certain about their identity, which can only be found in God. They don't know the purpose as to why we're here. It can only be found in God. But you have a captive audience that's willing to listen to music. So we will tell you your identity through music. We will tell you your purpose. Matter of fact, you're so young, don't even worry about a purpose. Just have fun. And so music just becomes that avenue. And, and you get so caught up in it to where, like you said, in my 20s, now I'm trying to find out what I'm here to do and what I'm supposed to do. And it's hard for me to sit and listen to this you know, sermon for 30 minutes. I want to hear some music. And, and there they go. I've got a library of songs, like I believe everybody does, that as soon as I hear the music, mm -hmm. I can instantly... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Remember, the, and I may not have heard the song for 20 some yeah. odd years. Yeah. And, and so I, 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 the question I asked him about, are we doing enough in the church to explain to people what 
this music is doing to us. And, and, and he, he brought up a great point that I hadn't considered. Like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, preach against hip hop. That's fine. But now my music that I grew up on, <laughs> leave it alone. And, and I just, do you guys experience any of that resistance or maybe it's you're not, maybe not as well versed. I think this is an area of passion for him. Mm-hmm. Ministers mm-hmm. have different areas of mm-hmm. passion, mm-hmm. but can you, are you addressing this stuff in your churches from the pulpit or? I don't think we're addressing it enough. So when you talk to me on the weekend, I've spent the last 52 hours or whatever uh, doing a deep dive, watching videos and checking out lyrics and all this stuff. And I don't think we're dealing with it enough. I think so many churches <clears throat> don't want to come across as legalistic and killjoys and putting down music uh, when they actually don't know what they're talking about. So they just they stay away from it. And I think that the alternative is there's a lot of Christian music that's not as good when compared to some of the stuff that's out there. And so you get into this thing where people might like uh, Christian music, like the idea of it, but until it's really good and really well done, it's not going to be as effective. Uh, And I don't know if you want to get into this, but this is why what Kanye is trying to do I think I think what he's trying to do. There's a lot of merit in it, and we need to get behind it. Mm, that, that's I've heard different thoughts on Kanye. I I tend to like Kanye and what he's doing, but I've heard people say, "Nah, that's really a wolf in sheep's clothing." Mm, mm. Uh, music is. It, I, I like music. Let me let me get that out. I love music. When you talk about you had a library, I thought you were going in a different direction. I've got, you know, I was one of those people when I bought an iPod back in the day, I maxed it out because I loved all the old school music. I loved all of that stuff. So I get music. I was raised, though, to understand the deception of the enemy. If you go back to the garden, he deceived Eve. Eve was told not to, even Adam, were told not to eat of this tree. And he presents it in a way that, oh, it's just, right? It's, it's just a tree. Come on, it's just fruit. The text says that she saw the fruit was good for food. It's, hey, it's, it's just like all the rest of them. And so what happens is, and I think Bobby was kind of touching on that, now when churches are charged to, hey, somebody's got to say something about yeah. this. Now we're talking in, in society, well, it's just a song, man. It's just a. But there's a lot to the things that we hear repetitively, the images that we see repetitively, the sex that we see repetitively, the satanic that we see, even if it's subliminal, repetitively. And just like how songs work, they have a repetition, a refrain that that sticks with you. Like I said, the opportunistic approach that Satan uses, what better way can I get to the mind and the heart of people than to put my design in rhythm. But guess what? As he also mentions in Ephesians chapter five, God says we need to be speaking to each other in Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs that we're encouraging. We're Mm. we're teaching God's word. I'm doing that with my kids. I want them learning. and, And as a matter of fact, I recently had to speak 
uh, at a church in Louisville and there was a concert the Saturday before Sunday that we had worship. And my son just last night, dad, can we go back to Louisville? He's still trying to get it together. He says, can we go back to Louisville? Because I want to hear that song again. Great Christian song, great Christian. So if we can get our kids there, but at the same time, teaching them what they see in society, teaching them what music can really do. Bobby made an interesting point about Christian music needs to be better. Mm I want to first throw this in Anthony's lap. Sure. Just because like when Kirk Franklin started expanding people's minds about what gospel music is, started working with rappers and, you know, I got it. Stomp is one of my favorite yeah. <laughs> songs. Yeah, yeah. There was some criticism. Was sure. like, oh, you're, you're making the music too secular. You've gone too far and blah, blah. What do you, particularly after today, after this conversation, I think what Kirk Franklin's doing is probably the right thing in terms of he's trying to reach young people where they're at Mm -hmm. with gospel music in a form they can appreciate. So music is attractive. okay? it's 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 fun. It's attractive. And the one criticism that I, I recognize that Kirk was given, as many Christian artists are, is are we trying to attract to the word, to life transformation, or are we attracting to entertainment, which is what, you know, secular music does. I just want you to feel good. I want you to be entertained. There's a place that that's what that music does. So that critique is, are we attracting people to the word, to life transformation? Are we teaching through this or are we simply trying to be entertaining? Now, I can't speak to the heart of of every Christian artist, but that's the critique. Again, my personal teaching on that is if we're going to use this fine, but let's get back to the word which is going to transform our lives. It, there's, there's one. I don't want people just to be so caught up in the sound. Are you learning? Is it transforming? Is it really settling in your heart? So I want to say uh, just a couple of things to jump right in here. First of all, I, I'd like to talk about Kanye. Uh, I don't know Kanye nearly as well as probably a lot of people watching, but I've been doing a deep dive to learn more about him lately. And I want to be an advocate for what he's trying to do. Uh, I also want to give a caution. And before I get into that, I just want to say you are on the right track with all this. Like, this is really serious stuff. And most preachers and most church leaders, most youth ministers are afraid to address it today because everybody is so concerned about being judgmental and legalistic and all of that, that what's happening is this stuff is really bad. Like these lyrics, these videos, this stuff is ungodly. It's demonic and satanic. And uh, it just breaks my heart. And everybody watching should be brokenhearted about it. Now, you can do two things. You can say this isn't right, but you can also say, hey, this is a better way. Let's not just curse the darkness. Let's show a better way. And I think that Kanye, for all of his stumbling and following, he's trying to do the right thing. 
He's trying to influence people. He's trying to come up with these albums. One of the things that we talk about a lot is people need to be discipled. And I think Kanye needs some people in his life to disciple him because he's so wealthy, he's so famous, that it's going to be hard for that to happen. But that guy's working on the right things. Some of his albums that he's published, the, the praise and worship, the King Jesus stuff, Jesus is fantastic. King. And you know, on uh, Halloween, they uh, held a church service and you had uh, Kanye West with Justin Bieber and Marilyn Manson saying a prayer. Uh, Manson grew up in a Christian home and uh, you can see Kanye's influence and it's such a good thing. Uh, even people like Travis Scott was, had done an album or I'm sorry, had done a song with Kanye talking about, you know, praising God for, for the blood of his son. And there's a lot of confusion out there. And what we need is real clear direction that this is the, the way scripture teaches us. And there needs to be encouragement. And uh, I think some cheerleading for people like Kanye right now. You mentioned Marilyn Manson. You mentioned Travis Scott. A lot of people would say that like, they're just dabbling in that to cover up their real agenda. And, and Snoop Dogg did a gospel album. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And man, he's got 12, 15, 20 albums that ain't got nothing to do. <laughs> no, and it's like Kanye. <laughs> Kanye actually produced Lil Nas X's Industry yeah. Baby. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I saw that, I thought, how? But here's the deal. Uh, how many people... Uh, out there are like Kanye and they're immersed in this confusing world and they need people to disciple them and guide them and direct them. And uh, rather than just throwing stones at him, I wish we could get to him and help him to, to really get fully on the straight and narrow path. He's, he's smothered in money. And, so, and what I'm saying is like, he, there's a whole army of ministers trying to get to Kanye because he's smothered in money and ministers yeah. understand the power of money. I, I don't, if he wants to be discipled, he'll get discipled. <laughs> but, does he, but, but Jason, does he even know that? Does he know that the platform he's got brings with it so much responsibility that he needs people who will speak the truth to him and speak what scripture says to him God guide him. But, but what I'm suggesting is given his Sunday services that he's been doing for several years, he's been wearing his faith on his sleeve for yeah. a long time. He's attracted the attention of a lot of ministers. Sure. And from yeah, TV but I'm not talking about people that want a piece of him. Because that's not what he needs. I got it. But if, if he's got a thousand ministers coming at him and like these are supposed to be the best Christians or, you know, the the the, the Gucci bags of Christians <laughs> or whatever. And, and so it's hard for him to discern who's actually here to disciple me, mm -hmm. who's actually here to reach into my pocket, who's actually here to hopefully uh, glom on to my popularity. But, but again, I'll say that on a far smaller level, I have the same issue, you know, trying to discern what the agenda is. But it's like, I don't, at, you know, and Kanye, I think, is in his 40s now, right? I, th I think. Yeah, he's 44. Yeah, 44. He should, be, he, sh he should have a level of discernment 
and be able to figure out like, well, no, Bobby and Anthony really don't want anything from me and they're just offering me up their opinions and I'm asking for, and I keep seeking out y'all's advice. Mm-hmm. He can, if he wants to be discipled, I just think he's getting a lot of people offering it up. And because gonna, I just like so much of what he's doing. I'm, I'm cheering for him, but there's this, you know, this, like industry baby getting involved in that and little Nas X, that's terrible. That was the difficulty for for me and I know for some of the people that I know that like Kanye, they, when he first came out with Jesus is King, it was promoted not just as the album, but like a major shift in him personally, that he's beginning this walk with Christ, that his music is going to be Christ centered, all of that. But then, you know, we see that and you know how celebrity and fame does. They'll put that out and then, you know, you now his walk becomes public. And so some of the issues in his life, they say, well, I thought you were and and his political stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But you do see he's still trying to. Well, okay, well, let me put out, you know, Sunday services. Let me put out, you know, this. So there's that kind of and that's where the person listening has to discern. Okay, wait. I can take the music, you know, his personal life is one thing aside, but I think what Bobby is saying, and which is what I'm trying to, you know, get across, not just to Kanye, but to everyone, like, yes, we have this aspiration to be, but let's walk in it. Let's do the best we can to walk. I want Kanye, you know, when you understand your conviction to to Christ and to being led by him, you say to Lil Nas X, man, I appreciate the opportunity to produce this album, but man, that's not godly. I'm not kidding. There's, yeah. a, there's a passage in the Bible, James chapter three, it says, not many of you should become teachers because as such, you'll suffer a more strict judgment. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he's in a pace, he's a teacher, he's an influencer. And with great opportunity comes great responsibility to God at the end of time. Yeah. I, I want to, and we don't have much time, but I want to push back on something uh, Anthony said about Kirk Franklin and mm-hmm. just uh, what's he, what's his agenda? What is it about the word? And and maybe Kirk Franklin would argue, and I, I don't know, was like, well, my job is music. Mm-hmm. Anthony and mm-hmm. Bobby, y'all preach. Mm-hmm. And 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 what Kirk Franklin would potentially argue, and what I where I've come down on Kirk Franklin is like, man, he's just planting little seeds in young people Mm -hmm. and putting some music in their head that they'll be regurgitating. And and it's like, it's y'all's job to water those seeds (laughs) and to grow those flowers. Oh, I don't have a, I don't have a critique against him, you know, with, from that personally, I'm saying that's what the critique was when he came out. He was so, it was so good, you know, especially with the, the the way that his music was. It wasn't the traditional gospel sound. It was, you know, in some terms, hip hop and some terms kind of ballad like, wow, this is just neat and hot. And the critique from a lot of the churches at the time was, OK, wait, is this just trying to make this like the world's or is it really trying to? That's where that's where sometimes that can get kind of, OK, where is this going? But, hey, if, if people are going to be praising God and, and, and putting out music for God, hey, let's do it. Yeah, I think we I think we need to get behind these guys. I think that uh, it's one thing to, to rightfully describe the demonic, satanic stuff. And it's really bad. 
and it's bad than most, it's, it's far worse than most parents realize. And great for you to calling it out, but we've also got to show a different way because it's not like people are not going to want music. Sure. They want music, so sure. let's try to help the Kanye's and let's encourage other people. I want to ask one more pursuit. Kirk Franklin question before we get out of here because this was like industry baby and Kanye was like, come on, man. And then <laughs> Kirk Franklin, though, I think it was the last BET Awards or whatever, he opened it up. I can't remember the artist he opened it up with. There was nothing wrong with their song and their opening, but the BET Awards then went on to have Cardi B and Megan the Stallion basically perform sex on stage. And, you know, it was just debauchery. Mm-hmm. It's, Kirk Franklin and them opened the show on a gospel note, and then the show turned into <laughs> everything Welcome else. to Babylon yeah. and Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. And how should we feel about that? Should, is, do, do we blame Kirk Franklin for like, I'm going into hell, but I'm gonna plant these seeds for heaven, and then I'm gonna get out of here. Is, is that the right thing maybe to do? To me, the, the, the difficulty right now is that you have these people uh, like Kanye, uh, I don't know Kirk Franklin as well, but they're trying to be the light, but they're also getting it mixed in with a whole lot of darkness. And one of the things that I've concluded when I spend time on this, and, and I don't say this in a judgmental way, I think these guys have to have more backbone to stand up for the teachings of Jesus and say, I'm not going to participate with darkness. I am not going to do that. And I may lose money, I may lose credibility, but I'm going to be faithful to King Jesus over all of that. You know, uh, you're right about him sowing seeds and that then you want preachers to do it. But I just want to I want to challenge that a little bit. Everybody who is a follower of Jesus, your first job is to be a disciple and then also to help make disciples. And that's everybody's job. Certainly. Certainly. No question. And so I guess I'm saying I appreciate Kirk Franklin planting those seeds. I'll come in and water them when I can, uh, do, do what I can, do what I can to, to help. Uh, I had one other thought about Kirk Franklin, but I'm going to let it go because we're out of time. I'm sorry. I had to cut you all short. We're about 10 minutes shorter than we normally are. But anyway, it was a great show. Uh, go to YouTube.com, Jason Whitlock. Uh, I hear tomorrow playing. That means we'll see you uh, tomorrow. Waiting for the countdown, coming off the breakdown, standing in line for freedom. Looking for a breakout, feeling like a standoff, nothing in life like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation, we all just want to have freedom. Sitting on a corner, never been alone, I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back, we are receiving all the seeds when we all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be, I just want